This is your host, Dr. Jordan Silverstein, and you're listening to the Let's Talk Cancer podcast, where we make information about cancer easy to access for patients and their families. But please remember, the information presented here is for education purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. To maintain privacy, identifying details about patients have been changed for this podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kavita Mishra to talk about integrative oncology. Dr. Kavita Mishra is an internationally renowned radiation oncologist focused on the treatment of ocular melanoma at UCSF. She is a professor and director of the Ocular Tumor Radiation Therapy Program and faculty at the Osher Center for Integrative Health. Dr. Mishra went to Harvard College for her undergrad, followed by her medical degree and radiation oncology training at UCSF. She completed a master's degree at the Harvard School of Public Health and a fellowship in integrative health at UCSF. Not only does Dr. Mishra treat cancer patients as a radiation oncologist, but she also provides integrative oncology care with individual consults and group visits focused on mindfulness. She uses scientific evidence to support cancer care with integrative healing approaches. These approaches, including mind-body practices, nutrition, physical activity, yoga, sleep hygiene, acupuncture, body work therapy, guided imagery, and meditation. Dr. Mishra's goals are to enhance the quality of life and well-being of patients during and beyond the cancer journey. Hi, Dr. Mishra. Hi there. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me here. So what does integrative oncology mean? Yes, it's two simple words that actually mean a lot. Um, For me, in the simplest form, uh, I usually think about it as the science and the art of cancer care for the whole person. So let me break that down for you. So the integrative oncologist will usually work in conjunction with the primary team. The primary team is dealing with the cancer at hand if a patient has cancer. And then the integrative oncologist is thinking about all of the other things that might promote health and support that cancer treatment. It's asking questions like, what are we putting into our body? How are we moving our body? How are we moving our mind? What else can we be doing to help our health? And the the three major aspects that I like to think about in integrative oncology, and that is looking at the patient, the individual, the team, and then the approach. And so the patient, it's really centered around the patient looking at not only what's happening from a biological standpoint, but what's happening socially, psychologically, what are the environmental factors that might matter. And then we broaden out to look at the team and say, hey, who are all the people that might be helpful here? So, you know, a physician like me, nurses, acupuncturist, nutritionist, exercise counselor, a yoga teacher, psycho-oncologist, there's so many disciplines that can be helpful for a person as they're going through the cancer journey. And so really trying to integrate that whole team together. And then the last part that I think about is the approach. And so what does the evidence show? Is this safe? Is this rational? And ultimately, we want to focus on promoting health as well as reducing cancer risk, cancer recurrence risk, and supporting cancer treatment. So I work really closely with my medical surgical colleagues. I'm a radiation oncologist myself uh, and the rest of the team to say, hey, how can we most benefit a patient in terms of their clinical outcomes? So 
a lot goes into those two words of integrative oncology. So a patient, for example, would go to their oncologist and they would additionally go to an integrative oncologist who would be able to see, oh, they've seen an oncologist, they've seen a nutritionist. I think they would benefit from a exercise therapist as well as um, helping with their sleep. So it takes kind of a broader approach to their treatment plan rather than just when you see your oncologist, you're focusing mainly on what treatments am I getting? Is that an accurate distinction? That's perfect. Yeah, that's exactly right. How does a patient access an integrative oncology center? Great question. So nowadays, um, there are obviously comprehensive cancer centers like UCSF that have various integrative approaches. And you can, a patient can ask their oncology team to say, hey, what is already available at the center that that patient's at? And depending on where the patient is in their journey, there may be folks that can help to reduce cancer risk, help with symptoms, help support treatment side effects, uh, optimize or promote health and survivorship, and help in, in the end of life care. Now, specifically, if one is looking for a practitioner, you can go to a website like ours, UCSF uh, Osher Center for Integrative Health is where we have our integrative oncology base. And then the Society for Integrative Oncology is also a really great resource for folks. And when you have an integrative oncology center, what are you getting that is in addition to your normal oncology visits? Because a lot of these things that you mentioned, the patient the nurses, the doctors are, a patient's already accessing those things. What is in addition to those things? A lot. It can be, depending on the, what the patient needs, it can be access to acupuncture or nutritional counseling or exercise counseling or mind-body therapies like yoga, tai chi, qigong, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a particular um, mindfulness program that has been studied in healthcare settings. And so you're right, a lot of integrative oncology does not have to be specifically in an integrative oncology center, but what can happen at the center is the integration of all those different uh, team members as part of one point for a patient. So what broad topics do you talk about in an integrative oncology visit? What are the other resources you're pulling? Some statistics show that you know up to 80% of patients will use integrative oncology modalities, but only maybe a quarter of those patients will actually talk about it during their visits uh, with their cancer specialists. And so part of the integrative oncology visit is understanding what patients may already be using, um, having the open communication and dialogue of what is of interest to the patient, what are top priorities, and then also importantly, what are barriers. And so once there's an understanding of that, for example, with me and a patient, we can talk about the specifics of nutrition or exercise or mind-body practices or sleep hygiene, and then come to an understanding of, hey, if there are a few things that we want to bring to the priority list, what might those things be? And how do we actually develop smart goals or you know, sustainable uh, small steps to be able to have a patient develop habits that may be helpful and, and pro-health. And when you meet with a patient, how often are you seeing them? 
It depends. Um, sometimes what I usually do in my clinic is we will have an initial visit where we will chat about what's happening for the patient, what questions do they have, what are some of the top priorities. And then we'll have a second part uh, where we will talk about exactly what might be the top most priorities that are attainable for that patient. And we'll, and I will send in the right referrals and get them into the different programs that I think might make sense for them. And then depending on what the patient needs, it may be every handful of months that we see them. My colleagues and I usually will see our patients about every three to six months. Hmm. Although it's, it's really hard to see, you know, there is a real demand for integrative oncology. And so uh, sometimes there can be quite a bit of weight, but we are trying to work on that through both the individual clinic and then also developing group practices. So let's dive into a bit more detail into some of the modalities that you mentioned. Let's start with physical activity exercise. How do you approach a patient with cancer and how do you assess what exercise would be good for them and what are your recommendations? So every patient is obviously different and the first premise is always to personalize their exercise plan. Uh, depending on what symptoms they may be having, what side effects they're experiencing, uh, what are they able to do, what are they interested in doing. And so uh, we will talk through that um, as to where they're at. And then also we'll talk through what are the benefits of physical activity. So we know from really good data, from meta-analyses, randomized control trials, sort of the gold standard of how we think about cancer care generally, we know that physical activity helps to lower the risk of developing cancers, things like bladder, breast, colon, endometrial cancer. Physical activity can reduce symptoms. It can reduce side effects like fatigue, um, anxiety, depression, lymphedema. Uh, it can help with sleep. We also know that physical activity can reduce the risk of recurrence of cancer uh, and actually increase survival. So there are a lot of reasons why physical activity is important and that's been shown very thoroughly in the data. So we'll talk through that. And then we will talk about the practical aspects of, hey, how do I actually bring this into my practice? What are my barriers? What, I, what would I be most interested in doing? And there's a really nice um, uh, program called Moving Through Cancer Exercises Medicine from the American College of Sports Medicine. And they provide some guidelines for patients with cancer or post-cancer treatment. And I'd say the most important thing is sitting less and moving more. So sitting less meaning less than six to eight hours a day should we be sitting. And we should be moving, ideally building up to about 150 minutes a week. That turns out to be about you know 30 minutes, five times a week or 50 minutes, three times a week of moderate activity. And moderate activity is where you can speak potentially to someone if you're next to someone, but you can't sing. Uh, vigorous activity is when you can't even sing. So about 150 minutes of moderate activity a week is what we strive for. Now, that's with the caveat of what's happening for the patient. If their body is telling them, hey, I need to nap, I, I'm feeling fatigued, then you, I always want the patient to listen to that first. And then when there are moments or uh, options of being able to get outside or getting a bit of exercise, I always tell folks to, hey, let's get at least some of those minutes in and build up to that 150. And it's not that 150 is a magic number. It's just that it's been studied as part of the data. 
So there seems like there's a lot of good research to support exercise in or physical activity in whatever capacity is possible during cancer treatment and cancer recovery. Uh, That's right. Does it matter the type of physical activity or is it really getting to the moderate level of intensity? It's the latter. It's really about getting to a certain level of activity. And that can be with gardening, biking, walking, swimming, uh, you know, whatever is of interest to the patient. We really talk through what might work for that patient and be sustainable for that patient. And also the other thing that I often refer to, uh, refer folks to is uh, exercise counseling or sometimes physical therapy, occupational therapy, rehab, can be helpful. There are other things like dance, yoga, tai chi, we talked a bit about. Those are all wonderful resources to get activity in whatever way works for a patient. Great. Let's move on to the next bucket or the next topic that you talk to patients about, which is nutrition. I know this is a really broad topic. So as much as you can tell us in a more general terms would be awesome. Yeah, that's right. So food is medicine. Um, I have some dear friends who are uh, who are in this field, and and honestly, food is medicine. And so we know again from really strong data, meta analyses, randomized control trials, that a healthy diet and lifestyle are associated with a significantly lower risk of developing cancer and cancer recurrence. So what does that mean? Um, we know that nutrition, and there may be multiple factors of why it matters, nutrition matters. And it may be because uh, it's related to obesity. Obesity is a leading risk factor for cancer. It's associated with you know, more than 13 types of cancers and probably about 40% at least of all cancers diagnosed are related to obesity. So we know nutrition matters. Why does it matter? Well, one, some of the theories are that we may put ourselves into a chronic inflammatory state when we don't eat well, and that predisposes us to cancer. Another thought is around the microbiome. The microbiome is a sort of city of trillions of species of bacteria and other uh, organisms that live within us and on us. uh, And we live in general harmony. However, nutrition and environmental exposures can affect our microbiome, the sort of society that lives within us. And so uh, what we put into our bodies affects the microbiome. And we know that the microbiome then can be uh, altered in a way that predisposes us to um, issues like cancer or chronic disease. And so we'll talk, so I will talk through that with patients to be able to understand, hey, why, what's important and why? And then we'll go to what can we actually do something, uh, what can we do about it if it's important to us? And so on a practical side, we'll talk about things like eating more plant-based foods, anti-inflammatory foods. There is something called the anti-inflammatory pyramid, uh, which talks about the kinds of foods that may be beneficial to us to bring inflammation down, um, which include whole foods, unprocessed foods, vegetables and fruits are the base of that pyramid, whole grains, beans, Um, Certain mushrooms like cooked Asian mushrooms have been thought to have certain uh, chemicals that are really healthy for us. Things like shiitake, enoki, maitake. And so we'll talk through that. And then ultimately it's what all of our, you know, 
parents said to us as we were growing up, which is try to eat those brightly colored um, vegetables and fruits as much as possible. They are a really great source of phytochemicals or chemicals from plants, which are good for our bodies. And generally, when we try to take it as a supplement, our body doesn't seem to absorb it as well as when we take it in its natural form through nutrition. The I'll just add one other piece, which is the 80-20 rule. Often it can be very overwhelming to hear all of these recommendations and say, oh my God, I'm how can I even, you know, how am I going to be able to bring all this into my life? And so I often will talk about the 80-20 rule where we say, hey, most of the time, let's try to do the things we know are beneficial for our bodies, but 10 or 20% of the time, let ourselves do the things that maybe are not ideal because ultimately we want something that's long-term sustainable. And for most people that 80-20 is much more sustainable. So it sounds like food can actually help not only just maintain your weight and maintain your energy level, but it can actually have anti-inflammatory effects, which yes. has there been evidence that showed that this actually helps fight cancer, reduce cancer burden, decrease recurrence? Yes. Yes, for sure. Nutrition has been showed in trials to reduce the risk of cancer recurrence, um, reduce the risk of cancer death. Um, it's been a really important piece of our learning over the last handful of years and decades in terms of what do we need to do? What, what is in our control that we can do to help ourselves? So yes, definitely based on the data. And are there any foods that patients with cancer should really try and avoid? Um, great question. And there's a, there's a great resource online, uh, which is, well, there are multiple, the American Cancer Society, the American Institute for Cancer Research, and the AICR, the American Institute for Cancer Research, produces a sort of, quote, top 10 list of um, things for uh, patients to either bring their cancer risk down or bring their cancer recurrence risk down. So some of the things that are included in that are things like reducing or ideally avoiding alcohol, um, avoiding processed foods, eating fruits and vegetables, um, and, and getting the exercise that we had talked about. So I'd say in terms of avoidance, particularly processed foods, really important, um, and reducing red meats, lean meats are, are better in terms of the anti-inflammatory pyramid. And will you refer patients to nutritionists or is this all within an integrative oncology visit? Oh, all the time. Yeah. We work with our nutritionists really closely. And so we'll refer patients all the time to the, the nutritionist, either as an individual or they actually have some group visits that the nutritional counselors will do at UCSF. And so we'll refer to those. This was really interesting. A lot of good learning about nutrition. We could probably do a whole episode on it. For sure. <laughs> no. um, but the next topic is about mind-body medicine and yoga. How do you incorporate this into your visits with patients with cancer? So this is a particularly close to my heart uh, group of practices. Yoga mind-body medicine is a super diverse group of it buckets a lot of different practices. And the idea is how does our mind body behavior affect our health and how do we use that connection to potentially promote our well-being? 
So things like meditations, which might be breath work, body awareness, uh, it may be focused on self-compassion. And there are actually uh, eight-week courses that are offered both at UCSF and across the nation for mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cancer recovery. And that is all around how do we how do we understand what's happening within us, both mind and body, and how do we potentially uh, impact it with practice? Uh, there are other things that are in that bucket too, like Qigong, Tai Chi, which are East Asian type movement or energy-based therapies and yoga. And I, I usually will throw in things like nature medicine, art, dance, music, all of which have a real beauty for patients and, um, and actually have been shown again, through the data to be helpful. So for example, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network now lists meditation, stress reduction, yoga as part of the potential therapy for certain symptoms like stress, depression, anxiety, fear of cancer recurrence. And so this is, and that's not based on, hey, me saying, I've seen a couple of patients that have benefited. No, that's based on trials looking at patients who have gone through yoga and not or who have gone through meditation practice or not and they see a difference in the outcomes and so this is this is something that i have found really an interesting somewhat intangible sometimes way of helping patients cope with the cancer journey again in addition to all the other things that we're talking about nutrition exercise and then their primary treatment, which might be immunotherapy, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. And it sounds like this is very individualized. Not every person is going to want to go on this mindfulness journey or do Qigong or Tai Chi, but for the people who are open to it, it sounds like there are real benefits to it. That's right. That's right. I actually just had a patient say to me, you know what, I'm not so sure about this. And, (laughs) and that's totally fair. That's totally fair. I, I start with trying to look at the science behind it and and what do we know about it? What is the data showing us? And where might this fit in for any individual patient? Um, And it may be not so fitting for some patients, but I find that for most patients, there may be a nugget of something that resonates ultimately. Let's talk about sleep hygiene. Yes, we all need sleep, don't we? Um, (laughs) Sleep is super um, essential and of course can be really difficult as a patient's going through the cancer journey. And that is for multiple reasons, Um, you know, physically, emotionally, psychologically, et cetera. And so we have a clinic at UCSF and other centers would have something similar with that's focused on sleep hygiene one of the type of therapies that really helps is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, and it can be really effective for sleep disturbances. Um, And then there are other things like acupuncture, yoga, some of the mind mind body therapies that we were just chatting about can also be helpful for sleep. And so I will, if that seems to be a high priority or something that I see as a really important piece for a, of the puzzle for a patient, I may, help to define some of that and or refer patients out for those particular therapies. Is there a recommended number of hours of sleep that has been shown to help patients with cancer? That's, that's, that is a great question often asked by patients. And, and we usually will turn it to say, hey, 
we try to get into the details of how is one feeling with the amount of sleep that they are getting? Are they waking up rested? Are they feeling groggy? What's happening for them? Are they sleeping through the night? Are they waking up with hot flashes, et cetera? So, so for me, generally, I'm actually a very much a numbers person, but when it comes to recommendations, I like to look at what's happening for the patient in terms of their health versus saying, hey, you need six hours of sleep and that's going to be the magic number. Um, generally, you know, six to eight hours is common, but for me, it's much more about the health of their sleep. Next topic I wanted to talk about was natural products. Any specific products you recommend or advise against? Natural products is a massive bucket of uh, discussion with patients. And so we try to be, as a group of integrative oncologists at UC, we try to be very thoughtful about what patients are on and what, what potential interactions may be happening because certain medication, certain natural products may be interacting with the medications that they're on for their cancer treatment. So we start by really assessing that. Um, in terms of common supplements that patients may be on, things like um, medicinal mushroom, where uh, if they don't tolerate eating mushrooms or uh, want to try to get certain mushrooms in their diet, they may have uh, that in a pill form. Turmeric is another anti-inflammatory uh, common supplement. But again, we always look at what else is a patient on and what it may be interacting with. Um, one common one that we may have a patient come off of during active chemotherapy or radiation are supplements that are high antioxidants. Um, in theory, that can affect the way a chemotherapy or radiation might work. The data is really split on that. So, so as we look at the list of meds, we will kind of talk through some of those things. Would you suggest that the patient ask their oncologist about the supplements that they're on? Or is this more of a discussion to have with an integrative oncologist, a nutritionist? I'd say um, both are possible. Some nutritionists are very well-versed in natural products. Uh, integrative oncologists, that's certainly uh, usually part of their their um, purview. Sometimes a medical oncologist will have data on it. Sometimes they may not have the data and or you know the ability to kind of put all that together. Also, if a patient's on a trial, that may define what they can mm. and cannot be on. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the other folks that are helpful also are naturopaths um, or uh, folks who have studied natural products, you know, for four-year courses and more. Uh, and that's really their focus. And so we will often see patients who are being seen by multiple folks and kind of try to put that whole picture together. Makes sense. Um, and then the last topic I wanted to talk with you about is acupuncture. Yes. Uh, acupuncture is an East Asian um, medicinal technique where they use sterile, usually thin needles, and it's applied into different body parts. And we're starting to understand in our current language of medicine, how, why and how this may work, but clearly it's been around for thousands of years and, and there are a number of disease processes that acupuncture can help with. And so in cancer in particular, things like pain, uh, fatigue, nausea, hot flashes, dry mouth, these are all symptoms or side effects that might be helped with acupuncture. And so if we see patients with some of these symptoms, 
we may send them off to acupuncturist either within our OSHA center or in the community to be seen. And is there data that this really helps patients with cancer? Yes, definitely. There is actually really great data. And so again, the NCCN, the National Cancer Comprehensive uh, Cancer Network, basically looks at all of the data out there and the gold standard data, trials, meta-analyses, systematic reviews, and a, a panel of experts will look at the data and say, okay, yes, there is really good data to support acupuncture for these symptoms. So now in the NCCN guidelines, you will see acupuncture listed for many of these um, needs. Um, if a patient wants to learn more, or have access to resources, do you have a list of resources that we can, I can put on my website and patients can access? Uh, that is a fabulous question and something that I am definitely working with the rest of our integrative oncology team on. We do have quite a bit of resources already on the OSHA website. And so that can easily be connected uh, for patients to be able to check in. We're also trying to update some of it so that it's, you know, as always, we want to keep it as up-to-date as possible. And then there are other websites like the Society for Integrative Oncology, the American Cancer Society, the Anti-Cancer Lifestyle Program. They also have quite a bit of, you know, patient-facing information um, in terms of exercise you know, moving through cancer, exercises, medicine is a great website. And they actually, the American Physical Therapy Association and the American College of Sports Medicine, they actually offer training for folks who are exercise counselors who want to do cancer work. And so if you search their websites, if a person, you know, if a patient's trying to find a certified exercise provider in their area, they can find someone through that. Um, for food, nutrition consults, the American Cancer Society, some of the other um, groups that we talked about are very helpful. Um, for herbs and supplements, the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, the NCCIH, they have a website that can give more information about herbs and supplements. Uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering has a great website. I believe it's called About Herbs. That's also helpful. Um, so there, there's, there's quite a bit of information on the web those are some of the ones that I tend to send patients to. Great. Thank you for that list. I will put those resources together as well. Yeah, um, perfect. And let's just conclude our episode. If you could tell us about a patient that you have seen use integrative oncology to really help them through their cancer treatment. I love that question. There's one patient that particularly comes up for me uh, in her 40s. Uh, diagnosed with metastatic cancer. I saw her in my individual clinic, and then I also uh, had her join a group mindfulness visit that I do with a colleague. And, you know, she was, she was with her family, with her work, and, you know, the, the bomb of cancer flew into her lap, which was really difficult for her. And she was going through chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, and I saw her in the midst of all of that. And so we worked through nutrition, exercise, physical activity, sleep, acupuncture for hot flashes and pain that she was experiencing. 
Um, and then we also work through some mind-body therapies. And there's one moment that's coming up in particular for me, which was she, we were doing this shaking dancing meditation that has some indigenous roots, some Asian roots. And as she was dancing in that, in that group medical visit, we were very open to family and caregivers joining as well. And so as she was doing this dance meditation, her daughter came into the screen and started dancing with, and it was just the sweetest moment for all of us. Uh, It was very, very sweet. And, and she shared later that she actually started to have that as part of her routine. Once a week, they would have a dance party. And it was just, it was a sweet reminder of a piece that she could be in control of when Mm -hmm. much of what she was experiencing felt out of her control and chaotic. And so that, a really important piece of all of this is empowerment for the patient. How Mm -hmm. do we empower ourselves to find those moments to bring ourselves into a, maybe a slightly healthier spot, even if it's momentary as we feel it. And so that, that was a moment that I remember thinking was so special and uh, it, it was sweet for her to be able to feel some of that empowerment herself. Yeah, that is quite a powerful moment. I have the chills myself. And I think that is a good moment to end on. And I just want to thank you for all the work that you do with patients and for being on here. And hopefully I know I've learned a ton and anyone listening will have a lot to take home with them. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Take care. And that's all for today on the Let's Talk Cancer podcast. Please follow us on Spotify and Instagram and pass it along to anyone you think would benefit from learning about cancer. And don't forget, tune in to our next episode.